quick interjection here at the start of the show. We discussed Jalen Brown pretty early on, and we were a little bit low on his number. I later learned he's actually $103 million guaranteed, $4 million in likely bonuses to get up to 107 and then $8 million unlikely bonuses to get up to $115 million. So it's $103 million guaranteed, $115 million total. Monday night edition of the show. Danny going to join me here in a second. We're going to continue our agent evaluations uh, with two agents that have smaller client lists. Uh, Jason Glushan, who used to be at Wasserman, and Buna Njai from Comsport, who has mostly French-based clients. Also got a little bit of NBA news to get to. Not all of it coronavirus-related, thankfully. And, of course, at the end of this, uh, we'll have our daily COVID-19 briefing. I actually did that myself today because Ben had the day off. But hopefully you'll still find it useful. I can tell you right now it won't be as good as with Ben. But I wanted to at least take you all through some of the stuff uh, that I had come across uh, that I thought was salient for today. Uh, If you get a chance, we would love your support at patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue. Danny and I did a mailbag podcast on Saturday that got into all of our listeners' questions. Those are always really fun to do. And anything that you wanted to talk about here before we get started, Danny? Well, that piece I talked about on yesterday's pod for The Athletic did come out. So that is the uh, basically a free agency preview just for the point guards. Talked a lot about Fred Van Vliet and some of the other, like Mike Conley's option decision, some of that kind of stuff, but also into the minimum guys and how the market works. So you can check that out at The Athletic. Well, let's check out Jason Glushan now. Subjectively, the sources that I spoke to, I probably talked to 10 sources or so over the course of this and I generally started off with the question of who who do you think are the best agents? If it was someone that was a family member for you, who would you recommend? And he was a, a name that came up uh, just from a, a subjective standpoint. Team people who dealt with him thought that he was fair, had a good understanding of his client's value. And uh, I think as we'll go through here, he doesn't have that many clients. But overall, it seems like he has done a pretty good job for them let's go again here in alphabetical order starting with jalen brown brown famously did not have an agent in the 2016 draft process it ended up not hurting him he went third overall which is higher than many expected he has since justified that draft slot but when he went to do his extension with the boston celtics he did in fact hire glushan who was also the agent of his foreign teammate al horford and it was a four-year, $107 million deal, $95 million of that guaranteed. He had $8 million in unlikely incentives. MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, All-NBA. That's kind of win the press conference type of stuff. All-NBA, I think he, he might be able to get to. MVP, probably not. Defensive Player of the Year for a wing, probably not. I don't have the breakdown of exactly how much of that is All-NBA. And then he has... $4 million in likely incentives based on games played, the team winning 49 games, or reaching the second round of the playoffs. Those are easier for him to reach. So it's $107 million guaranteed, about 90, or, or I'm sorry, $107 million overall, about $95 million guaranteed. 
and some reachable incentives, which I think is is a good way to bridge the gap in a lot of these extension negotiations. And then if you win the press conference type of incentives as well, what did you think of that deal for Braun at the time? As a point of comparison, Pascal Siakam got the four year the four year max with eight percent raises. Now is one hundred and thirty, and so that means the difference. You know, depending on where you want to put Jalen Brown's contract, it's about 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 thirty million over four years. And but remember the risk premium here. I mean, for Jalen. Brown, not like he was a surefire. He hadn't accomplished what Pascal Siakam did last year, though you and I both liked his talent level. You know, I think this is, it's a reasonable one, but not an amazing contract. Like you talked at the intro to the first one when we did Rich Paul about how you and I calibrate grading that a C is average. You know, it's not like a C is a bad grade. This isn't this isn't business school or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, that, that's important to remember. If you're wondering more about our criteria, go back and listen to the Rich Paul one at the beginning. We spent a, a fair amount of time on that. But yeah, C, C is average. C is not an insult. That is, you got what was blocked for you. Right. And so I think that the challenge here, you know, I think that's a reasonable amount that Danny Ainge would have taken off of the max to do it. And then it becomes what were what were the odds that he would have gotten more in free agency? And I think the odds were decent, but they, you know, that's a passage of time. There's an injury risk, all sorts of other stuff. And this is life changing money. So I, I, I'm, I'm totally fine with this. It doesn't blow me away. It didn't then either, but it's not like terrible. I don't think it's going to like haunt Jalen Brown or anything. I gave it a B. I think that, uh, again, I you're going to take a little bit of a discount off an extension, but you're also, uh, these rookie extensions could be hard because in theory, you're taking a discount, but also restricted free agency is so feast or famine. If you get the offer sheet, then you're probably going to get paid way more than you're worth. If you don't get the offer sheet, then you might get squeezed the way uh, his teammate Marcus Smart did and in 2018, which is a really bad year to be a free agent and then there's also the idea of your current production versus your future production and so generally these extensions pay a player at a rate beyond what their current production would indicate i mean this this rate is you know a premium starter type of rate it's about 23 million a year or so and could go up to over 25 million a year and that is a very premium starter you expect it at least at the time you expected the max was going to continue to go up by quite a bit but that that said, I think it's clear that Braun would have had a max offer sheet waiting yep. for him if he probably, hadn't signed this. Probably the Georgia native would have gotten it from the Hawks. Yeah, but we didn't know that he was going to play at a near all-star level this season. And I don't think anyone could have known that, that he was going to average 20 points a game and be more efficient, really, than he ever had been and, and continue to provide excellent defense. Well, and, and the other part of it is how much... So there is, a, of course, a difference. You know, it said the Pascal Siakam contract was about $30 million, about, you know, depending on $30 million different. But the marginal difference of that $30 million is very different from another one. So, I mean, it's it, it, again, like, and he would probably end up still being on the Celtics. It's not like a restricted free agent can really use that if they're this good to get out if they want to be out. And there's no evidence that he does. Yeah, so do you think a, a B is, is reasonable? Yeah, I might go a little lower, like a B minus, but we're, you're within the range that I would have considered. Yeah, I still think that agents who are willing to say, hey, life-changing money, let's lock it up. I think that that, even if that's not even necessarily what the client wants for himself, I think when you, you really look at it, especially for a first extension, is his Jalen Brown's life really going to be that different if he makes $130 million or $100 million over the next four years? Well, his life would have been a lot different if he got injured and wasn't able to get any kind of a contract like this or really underperformed or his restricted free agent market didn't materialize. I mean, there's, uh, to me, 
he wasn't a no-brainer max guy by any means that, that was a, a possible outcome but i wouldn't say a likely outcome before the season and i think most people thought this was kind of right about where it should have been maybe even a little bit higher than some expected to to me i think this was higher than what we had for him in our mock extension negotiation yeah but i think some of that has just felt been being danny ainge <laughs> but um <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it's totally reasonable. And you and I both believe, and again, remember, part of what an agent's doing, after we, it's it's sort of the parallel of GM with an owner, is trying to get the your client to do the right thing. And players, you and I both think players should take extensions like this more often. And Glushan convinced Jalen Brown to do it, or at least was, you know, voice in the room and he ended up doing it. However, we wanted to find causation. Yeah, this is a, a little bit higher than what we actually agreed on in our mock rookie extensions. That was four years, 92 million with 3.5 million per season in unlikely incentives getting up to four for 106 so this is a, a little bit better than that um drew holiday signed a four plus one to return to new orleans in the summer of 2017 ended up being 126 million guaranteed more than that in incentives could be worth up to 150 million dollars i gave this one a b as well i think given the age that holiday was at the time also recalling that he had had these stress reactions had to have surgery in the relatively recent past he's been kind of an iron man since then but to lock up that fifth year i think was smart but he also got the player option so you get the best of both worlds he probably could have had offers around this range on a per year basis from other teams the wolves for example had cap space they were in the market for a point guard they ended up settling it on jeff teague but i think getting the fifth year but also getting the player option which is going to be key for him i think he'll be able to get back on the market in the summer of 2021 and get another pretty big deal uh, assuming he plays well next year uh i give this one a b as well i mean he's he was a good player he had some leverage but he wasn't quite at all-star level so uh, to get this and get that fifth year from the pels who had potential luxury tax concerns as well having traded for demarcus cousins the previous season and not knowing that he was gonna tear his achilles and not come back uh, i thought that was pretty good work what did you think i'm actually a little higher on it than you are uh yeah a couple reasons one that was 2017 which was a a much more challenging market it wasn't like he was in the bonanza and also the player option which will be after drew holiday's age 30 season considering his injury history that's really valuable like this it, it was a an option where you could decline it become a free agent and they couldn't have known necessarily at the time that 2021 was going to be a very good time to potentially choose that both for the market you know where the cap might be and also because he's playing well but also the assurance that if things aren't going well you can take that money and run and i think that it was a, a really fortunate thing and getting you know that was only possible staying in new orleans where things have worked out well he's been there through a lot of changes but i think that he has been an important part of that and also getting it at that time you know is a, a, a contract that is that he got what he should have, but it also aged pretty well, which I I really like. Like you know, this is the type of a good a good contract. So yeah, I'd go a little higher, B plus A minus, but it's not that huge a difference. Yeah, I remember thinking at the time that this is about what he should have gotten. Like the the number didn't surprise me. Yeah, it was it was a weird free agency because it was like we were convinced that the like even though there weren't that many suitors, that the team that the, the best guys were going to get their money, and for the most part, yeah. they did. Well, and, and that point guard market in the summer of 2017, remember George Hill thought he was going to get a massive deal. Right. And he ended up having to go to the Kings because so many point guards, many of whom disappointed as it turned out, got drafted in that 2017 draft. So there weren't as many slots. I, I, I thought he did a nice job there. I There's never really been that I'm aware of great reporting on precisely what those incentives are and how many of them he's gotten. 
So I, I can't make that part of the deal necessarily. Yeah. But uh, I mean, to, to get at least some upside, it was good. Al Horford is fascinating. Should we should we give Glushan all the all the praise for Al Horford ending up picking Boston over Washington? Because that remember that was a serious question for for a very brief period of time, and I think that was very important. As great as you and I both love Horford, but to, the team he chose was the very much the right decision. Yeah, it seemed like it. And recall, there was also that drama with Atlanta where there was a thought that he would go back there, but he wanted the full five-year max. They offered him five years in theory that wasn't the full max, but still would have given more guaranteed. But he was able to get the full boat three plus one max from boston i think things worked out pretty well for him there and then he was able to opt out earlier i mean think about it here too let's say he had gotten a four plus one with atlanta which i don't know if they're even were willing to offer him but if he were opting out in the summer of 2020 instead of the summer of 2019 no way he gets another four years after that i mean this played perfectly where he still had the value was able to get another long-term contract after those three years so he's going to turn out i think making much more money than he would have if he had taken that hawks offer well and also think about the overall situation i mean he was in boston they were consistently competitive and then he he's able to opt out after his age 32 season and because he was on a successful team and got some of that shine he was then still it was still tolerable to pay him that money over the years and he didn't get like a full max or anything like that from philly but remember he was 32 years old actually he just i think he he had just turned 33 actually but it was a age 32 season you're, you're talking about for this philly contract for the philly contract yeah. yeah and and so the timing on the the timing on the celtics contract worked out really well for that and he got you know he got a lot of, got a lot of money from philly and we'll see how it turns out from philly's perspective and when a contract doesn't look great from one side that means it probably looks good from the other yeah it seemed like he was able to get more money out of philly than boston was offering boston then when they got Kemba Walker they really wouldn't have had a way to retain Horford without a ton of of Byzantine other moves yeah the four years 109 million with Philly the last year is about half guaranteed and it guarantees if they win a championship at any point in the three years uh, beforehand I mean Horford also wanted to play the four and he got him somewhere where he could do that now he got his client what he wanted he's actually not playing well I don't think he's nearly as good at the four it's shown that that he's really struggled with Embiid I also thought the media frenzy around Horford was very interesting where it was leaked that there was a team that Horford had a massive offer from but remember that day like nobody knew who it was yeah and like people thought it was Dallas Dallas denied it uh and then it when he ended up signing with Philly that came as a total surprise I I thought that was interesting media manipulation do you think that accomplished anything I mean it made it more fun for us but I don't, I don't know that that strengthened the offers. But I, again, I think that people who actually need to know that information probably had a better idea than we did. Like I don't think, I, 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 I don't think Danny Ainge was was sitting up at night wondering if that if that offer was potentially there. I think they had their well, they had their well, own valuation and thought process. Y- maybe maybe what the point of it was was to try to get Boston to increase their offer so he could right. stay there. I think that's what they were. And, and maybe to. and maybe to get Dallas more interested if they weren't since that obviously whoever was sourcing it knew that they weren't the team yeah but i think the ability and you know that wouldn't have been possible obviously if jimmy butler had stuck around and and, but to get your client the money that he wanted play the position that he wanted and to be on a team that people thought of as a championship contender i I thought that was a pretty good job so I, i gave him a b plus for that b plus for the boston contract good work there i would say absolutely 
David Nwaba, uh, he started working with Nwaba in March of 2017. And it's basically been minimum contracts for Nawaba. I, I think that's about a C. I, I, Nawaba is someone that I've liked. I actually had hopes that he could do better than that. He's he now Tori's Achilles, uh, of course, and was waived by the Nets uh, for that reason. Didn't get a guarantee on that second year. And I, I thought this is about a C. I mean, I, I can't really, I think most people around the league aren't as high in Nawaba as you and I are. I would have hoped maybe you could get either a little more than the minimum or maybe a little bit of a guarantee on the second year, but that may just have not been realistic. But I, I thought he, he was a good enough player to not just be like a total fringe guy, but that's kind of what he's been. So uh, that, that's pretty much a C for me. Yep, I think that's fine. Um, Mie Oni was the third to last pick in the... 2019 draft went to utah signed i believe it's one guarantee fully guaranteed year and then two non-guaranteed years with the january guarantee date which is you know pretty standard it's not like he was the a top 10 pick in the second round or anything like that so that's totally fine to me nothing nothing crazy oh i think to be number 58 and get a guaranteed year is pretty good yeah, and it, seem, it seems clear that that was negotiated beforehand, and that's kind of why he got picked there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I guess I that's true. Him, that's true. Yeah. I, I guess I was undervaluing the first guaranteed year. Yeah, yeah. I think for for a fifty eight pick, I mean, that's uh, a lot of fifty eight picks never even play in the league. True. So, uh, yeah, I gave that a B plus. I thought that was all. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, Duncan Robinson was on a two way, got converted at the end of last season. Didn't have any leverage, but did actually get converted to an NBA contract. He has broken out in ridiculous fashion, of course, this season. He's been a fantastic fit but his, in his Miami. Could, it couldn't have been a unilateral conversion because of the structure of the contract. Oh, was- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's worth noting. Um, and he does have a relatively early guarantee date for next year, which, of course, they're going to pick up unless something crazy happens. Uh, of Actually, hmm. This might be a typo. Eric Pincus has his salary as his 2021 salary as non-guaranteed until July 15th, 2019. And then a million dollars guaranteed until the first day of the regular season. If that's true, that's actually a pretty good deal um, to where if he was on the roster basically at the end of summer league, then he gets a million dollars guaranteed the next season. I'm not, that might just be a typo for Eric though. It could be uh july 15th 2020 that he, that he has that guarantee date but uh regardless i mean i think this one was you know he, he got him into that miami system which i think is good that's a good place for a lot of people to be i would give this i don't know like a c plus something like that but we don't really know I, i'm uh a little unclear on the the details if it is that there's a, a guarantee that would trigger that early maybe i'd move it up to uh you know a b yeah seems fine with me yeah this th- these these ones are tough because those players don't have a ton of leverage. It, it's it's much easier to grade something like Holiday or Horford or something like that. Uh, Mo Wagner only joined him in March of 2020, so it hasn't actually negotiated a contract for him yet. But pretty good overall. Lowest grade was a C. No solid A's, but right around a, a three average. So but pretty solid for Jason Glushan. He uh, lived up to his reputation as we went through. Again, small sample size with the number of clients compared to some of the bigger agencies. Let's turn now to Buda Njai. I think all of his clients have some connection to France. And we'll start with Nicolas Batum. You'll recall that 
and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think he's been with Buna Njai his entire career. We can go all the way back to 2012, where he actually signed an offer sheet as a restricted free agent that Minnesota matched four years, 46 million. I gave that a a minus anytime you can get an offer sheet from another team you, you've done a great job yeah and, and that get, was and that was lucrative back then yeah yeah i mean that was you know the equivalent of 20 million dollars a year and but too, I mean, he was really young when he started in portland he was 19 when he was drafted and hadn't had a ton of production yet so that was a, a very good contract to get and it was clearly more than portland wanted to play but they did end up, end up matching it so yeah solid uh a minus there and then this is a tough one to grade you would say okay this is you should give him a great grade right like michael batum five years 120 million that's one of the worst contracts in the nba if you're an agent and you sign someone to one that one of the worst contracts in the nba for a team you probably did a great job but it's important to remember the situation at the time he did get a player option which he's clearly going to opt into although it wasn't obvious that he was going to drop off this quickly back then remember how, how young he was when he started his career um so but he also could have had, according to reporting, four years and 113 million from a number of other teams. Of max, that was the max at the time, uh, including the Dallas Mavericks. Now, I guess you could say though that he, there's no way he would get seven million for this year. <laughs> so he actually made out, came out ahead of things, and he got the optionality of the player option. But he did make less over these first four years than he would have made elsewhere. And depending on how you want to classify the situation, I mean, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen in Charlotte, but he, I think he would have been a better teams on the Mavericks, I would guess. Though the Mavericks had some tanktastic years, but maybe they wouldn't have if they had him. Uh, yeah, they probably would have because he wasn't any good. <laughs> well, the first couple of years of that, I mean. I mean, he was, I would say he was a below average starter every year of this contract. He really, he really disappointed. Yeah, because that was, that was when his true shooting dropped. Uh, he had a, he had a 16 PR that first year, but then yeah, it really fell off the wagon. Yeah, I mean, maybe the first year you would say he was like, uh, he wasn't a starter level player, I think beyond that first year, really. Right. I wouldn't argue that at all. Just that first year gives me a little pause. Yeah, so I, I gave that a, a, a B- minus ultimately for that contract. It, it is interesting that we see a, a number of these, and that could just be because of his philosophy or what his clients want, or uh, but guys taking a little bit less, it seems like, to stay where they are. Maybe that's just because the guys are happy there and he's listening to his clients, but that seems to be a trend throughout here uh, for Buna. Siku Dumboya drafted 15th overall rookie scale contract i i gave him a c minus on this one i thought that dumboya could have potentially gone higher maybe needed a little bit better of marketing it and generally it seems like buna's guys haven't gone that high in the draft relative to where you would hope they would be rudy gobert is another one we'll talk about <laughs> in a second yeah i have feelings on where he went in the draft right so and and you were dumboya the and you know an agent can't manage this a hundred percent. I mean, your your player is who your player is. But Dumbuya, there was kind of a thought that ah, eh, you know, he didn't work that hard. He didn't love basketball. Rudy Gobert, there was the same sort of thought uh, about him. I mean, imagine now thinking of that. Uh, Rudy Gobert really he seems to love basketball a lot. But uh, in terms of his competitiveness, and he's is known as one of the better workers. But yeah, Dumbuya dropped. I, I think going into the draft, you would have thought that fifteen would be low for him. So that's why I went with the the C minus. I have no opposition to that. Evan Fournier. It's actually one of the first the first scouting trip that I ever did. I saw Evan Fournier in 2012 at the Adidas Eurocamp. He was uh, being talked about as a potential first-round pick there. Ended up getting drafted 20th by Denver. Got traded to Orlando in the Aaron Aflalo trade. I thought that getting a European guy 
who hadn't played a lot. He was playing a big role for his French team, but not at a particularly high level of competition at the time. So getting him drafted 20th, I think that was maybe slightly higher than where he was being talked about at the time. My recollection is more in the mid 20s. So I gave it a C plus for that. Uh, and then in that summer of 2016, it was a five-year, $85 million deal with a player option as a restricted free agent. What did you think of that one? I'm positive overall on it. I mean, Fournier has always been this challenging player to place, you know, really a, a shooting guard only, you know, not not particularly great def- at defending anything, but also capable offensively. He's produced a lot in his career. I mean, he's, he's been relevant for such a long time. So I, I, I'm positive on it, not effusive. Does that seem about fair? I do love the player option. You know, I always love player option. This was less than I thought he would get. I thought he would get approximately this amount over four years rather than five. And it was 2016. Yeah, but there may have been, and they did agree on this pretty early on. Maybe he didn't have a hard offer elsewhere. Maybe he wanted to stay in Orlando where he had really blossomed into a starter at the time. And they knew that he would be the starting shooting guard. You know, if you compare what he got to say Kent Bazemore, he was a little bit less on a per year basis, but he did get more guaranteed money. He did get the player option. I ultimately went with just a C plus on yeah, this I'm one. Fine with that. Well, and we'll see, you know, he could really cash in again with the, the player option this offseason. Right. Or not. You know, I mean that's the beauty of the player option is if the market's not there, he can go back to Orlando and try again in the summer of twenty twenty one. Yeah, there there are a few agents that we'll talk about in this list where you think in some ways the most important agent job they're gonna do is coming very soon. And I think yeah. Fournier, what he does with his option and what contract his next contract, whether it's in twenty or in twenty one, is going to be hugely important. Rudy Gobert drafted 27th in maybe the one of the last first round draft picks that was ever straight up sold he was being talked about after that 2012 Euro camp as a potential top five pick and I didn't think that he did anything in France where he just looked so terrible the next season but just due to this idea that he wasn't that passionate about basketball in what ended up being a bad 2013 draft he somehow dropped it to number 27 and that was a disappointment. I thought he went too low. I was saying at the time, you were saying at the time. I had him fourth. And when you look at, I, I mean, he was, you know, had fantastic measurables, you know, one of the biggest wingspans ever, pretty athletic. I mean, for him to go 27th, I'm not sure what happened there, but I, I thought that was like F plus right there. I, I, that was really, and, to me, And what's uh, interesting, I went back and looked just to make sure where I had him on my real jam board then, and I picked Utah as one of the bad fits. The reason for that was because I thought they already had their center of the future and it ended up being that their center of the future became their power forward of the future and Gobert was their center of the future. Yeah, well, I, I mean, whether it was Cantor or Favors was uh, the center of the future. Uh, Cantor quickly became a center of the past. And then... The extension that he signed in the summer of 2016, fall of 2016, more accurately, four years, 102 million, no option. I gave that a C plus. Gobert was starting to emerge as one of the best defensive players in the league, you know, defensive player of the year candidate the previous season. It had really been, and he'd been playing at that level for about a year and a half or so. Didn't have a, a major injury history. You might say that he could have gotten the max. He wasn't going to get the designated player for five years, I think. And we'll see when he comes in in the summer of 2021. I mean, who knows whether this whole coronavirus stigma is going to continue to affect him. I, I hope that it doesn't ultimately. I doubt that it will. Um, I mean, we'll have been through so much by then. I don't know how are people going to really remember that at this point. But I think he'll probably be better off 
being a free agent then than he would have been a year later and he can get another long-term deal so this was solid money i think that it wasn't like automatically gonna be the max so and this was like very close to the max it was within you know three or four million or so i think of what the projected max would have been that summer and he was in a good situation and also utah would have matched whatever so it's not like that waiting would have gotten him more leverage i would say necessarily and it's not like he would have necessarily needed to wield that so yeah i I like this deal fine but as you said he gobert was this level of player so it's not some unbelievable pull jan mahidmi oh boy 2012 it was a four-year 16 million dollar deal in a sign and trade from dallas as a restricted do you remember who went the other way darren carlson yep yeah 2012 was a long time ago man (laughs) and 2014 and on i think i i remember those off seasons really well those sorry there was another player involved it was darren carlson and dante jones can't forget dante jones hero of the 2016 playoffs uh, for cleveland yeah, I mean, anytime you get something as a restrictive free agent, sign and trade, solid job there. And it was also a and flat $4 million per year, which I, th- I remember thinking at the time was pretty interesting. Yeah, so I gave that a B. I thought that, that was solid work. And then uh, A- minus on the four-year $64 million deal that he, uh, Mahimi signed with Washington. And again, we're trying to grade on a curve here, right? I mean, summer or... Yeah, summer of 2016, everybody was getting money. You got got to compare that to a guy who was a free agent in the summer of 2018 when there wasn't any money. But still, I mean, to get that contract, he basically you know had some issues with his knees. They got around that. They got the big money, and uh, that's been one of the worst contracts in the NBA since it was signed. I actually didn't think it was that bad at the time, but because I thought Mahimi was really good, actually. Well, it's the preceding year with the Pacers, but he, he had been but good. But remember, he was 29. 29. He was yeah. 29 time. That had been the first year that he been a starter at all really he had, had some spot starts i think in dallas before he got that first sun, the sign in trade contract and the most incredible part of this and it's kind of funny that we did him we did mahimi's agent the same time that we did al horford's is that washington it, to some extent paid mahimi with the money that would have gone to horford but remember that they already had marcin gortat <laughs> like this wasn't a circumstance where they necessarily signed him to be their like alpha and omega they were really squeezed out like mahimi didn't start a single game that next season in including you know like yeah well he, was, he like didn't even start the season i don't think like i think he was like injured immediately yeah i think he was injured but he it's not like he was ex- i don't even think they expected him to be the starter at, at first it was more of like a luxury yeah. they paid mahimi and they paid andrew nicholson so congratulations john mahimi you were this like what ended up being one of the worst contracts in the league best for you but you weren't even the worst contract signed by your team that summer 2016 was amazing um it would yeah. be i wish there was a way that we could do like a some sort of like live blow by blow like reaction podcast or like we, we should do like a mystery science theater of the podcast we did in 2016 on free agency that would actually oh be kind God. of a fun thing um but yeah holy crap maybe maybe jade hoy can uh we can steal him from the athletic to produce that one that, that would take a lot of production work but it would um yeah so uh solid a minus for that one uh frank nilakina was previously with caa so uh, hasn't done anything really for nilakina yet and we have no idea what the res- what the extension negotiation stuff is going to be like with him i'm guessing non-existent yeah uh vincent poirier i thought he he did a pretty good job to get two years 5.1 million dollars guaranteed above the minimum was good Poirier wasn't someone that was particularly on my radar as like oh this is one of the best Europeans coming over and then he hasn't really played it all this year I I think he actually maybe could contribute if he were given a larger role but that hasn't been the case they've had other centers in front of him most of the way or they've gone small but 
yeah, I mean, to get $5.1 million guaranteed for a guy like him, I think, w- was very solid. So uh, I give that a, a B plus. I'm not sure what other offers he was dealing with in Europe at the time. but uh, And especially for a team like the Celtics that clearly values European veterans. They had success with Wanamaker, with Daniel Tice. It seemed like a, a good place for him to end up. And, and we'll see. Maybe he'll have more of a role as time goes on there. Um, and then he's got Jalen Horde and William Howard. Both those guys are on two ways after being undrafted. And I, I gave both of those a C. I, I can't say I know that much about those guys to really uh, put a bunch of weight either way uh, on what he's done for them so far. Yep. Okay, let's, uh, let's hit this news here a little bit. Might save some of it for tomorrow. One thing, this was in the news last week, but we're getting to it now. But I think it's interesting more that it augurs for potential issues going forward here. That's something that Larry Kuhn and I talked about a bit ago. In Philly, they said they're going to reduce the salaries of basically at-will employees. And they asked for a voluntary 20% reduction for those who are under contract that they didn't actually have the power to reduce. And then Joel Embiid said, no, I'm actually going to pay $500,000 to these employees instead and completely embarrassed the organization and uh, inspired a mea culpa from Josh Harris, who apparently is very into doing these sorts of cuts in his other businesses. But couldn't get away with doing it publicly here it got out in the media and they had to reverse course but the reason i think that this is interesting going forward is simply that coaches in particular and other support staff who are under contract they don't have a collective bargaining agreement and so i think you could see and this is our first indication that there might be some friction between organizations and those types of people and so a lot of those people's contracts for example are scheduled to end at the end of the league year on june 30th and there's no way to just amend all of those contracts the way you can with the players through the collective bargaining process. So what's going to happen? Is the league going to try to just change all those contracts so that people are working for longer? I mean, presumably all of these people are getting paid. So are they then going to not get paid for however long they have to stay on until the actual the season actually ends? Are they going to just have to individually negotiate all these contracts? Or is someone like, a, say, a Mike D'Antoni, whose contract ends this year, is he going to just have a ton of leverage to be like, hey, you should get a new coach? One thing that occurred to me, Danny, what do you think of this? That teams that were thinking they were going to move on from their coach, I mean, I guess the optics of this just wouldn't work, given the times that we're in. But it might behoove them to just move on from their coach. Now, I mean, those coaches are going to get paid anyway, so maybe the optics would work and just say, hey, you know what? Like, we're going to have like a little kind of training camp type of thing anyway before the season resumes and then you're probably not going to have a full training camp uh before i mean the 21 2021 season if the coach you want is available i fully support it right yeah i mean if if you're thinking of now i guess the other problem is well those coaches are probably still under contract exactly yeah so it'd have to be someone who's like no we'll be really fun as you hire that coach on like july 1st And just if we see yeah, that that would be uh, that would be a shit show. But that's I mean, you could technically do that. Those will be some of the things that that we'll be watching here. Um, We talked about this in the mailbag and it's been some time since this came up. But NBA facilities are totally closed right now. And players are, are being urged to just only work out essentially at home or in open fields or, you know, not all players have awesome home gyms or anything. A lot of them live in apartments, et cetera, especially if you're a younger player. So that is going to retard efforts to restart the season when it's not going to be like, oh, we're just starting the season from scratch here, but you are working out all season. I think guys are not going to be in the same type of shape 
that they would be coming off of a, a normal offseason. Yeah, I think that's going to be an important time pressure. Like, how long do they get to do that? And then, of course, that that goes into everything else. We also got details. Uh, you and I did a podcast on picking the U.S. Olympic team last week, and we got the notice that as of now, I mean, obviously things could change. The Tokyo Olympics are scheduled for July. They're going to start July 28th, 2021. We do not know what the 2020-21 season will look like, when the timing will be. But it being in July, as opposed to there were murmurs that it could be in spring, that makes it more likely that there will be NBA players that we don't know how many and who that will be. Yeah, and perhaps teams, uh, players from teams that were eliminated earlier, uh, will it'll be easier for them to play if the season were to run a little bit longer. The Chinese Basketball Association was supposed to restart beginning of April. That has now been delayed till May, and that's looking like a four-month hiatus in theory after shutting down in January. And, and obviously, we're going to talk more about COVID nineteen, but we've seen in Chinese society some things that were briefly reopened like movie theaters that had not been closed again the whole thought was they're going to try to play these games in empty arenas and that that might facilitate things but ominous if they do indeed start in may the league was put on hiatus in mid-january and so if they, they really have a four-month delay and again i can't think of any reason why we would be on a faster track than the chinese to restart things and it's unclear as to why this delay occurred maybe because now the olympics have been canceled that it, it's easier to push things back there isn't that time pressure of getting the season over before the olympics so maybe maybe there's something external other than just simply they couldn't do it but four months from what was it march 12th that's july 12th right yep all right we can save the rest of this uh team by team news for a future date it's not exactly piling up at an enormous rate these days but uh we're gonna bring in me by myself <laughs> to go through the latest COVID 19 news uh, ben ted will be back tomorrow but uh, hopefully uh, my effort to do a solo pod uh, will prove worth your while i'm gonna give this a try as a solo edition today ben is feeling like he wants to stick to three days a week but i'm gonna try and continue with the, our mission of giving you a daily COVID 19 update the idea being you can listen to this Get a good roundup of what's happening in the world and then go on about your day not feel like you have to obsess over the news knowing that we are obsessing over the news for you. If you want to support this endeavor, since I am paying Ben to be on here three days a week and probably not going to get additional sponsorship based on the fact that we're doing this uh, patreon.com slash duncan larue is a great way to do that and support this podcast we appreciate all of you who have done that especially realizing that times are a little tight right now some of you may have noted that we haven't done a lot on the news man i think we actually haven't done any on the news about potential therapeutics vaccine trials and I think the biggest reason for that is we're just in such a nascent stage right now that there isn't necessarily the evidence to show that these really work. And, and it, I don't think it really does us a lot of good to be breathlessly speculating about the first study that showed that this worked in 20 patients. I think this is one where I want to defer to the experts, really wait until they're a lot of data that experts really agree and a consensus emerges that this treatment can work. I think just continuously barking up every tree of everything that shows a little bit of promise is a little premature for that right now. When it gets to the point where a consensus of experts are starting to say, yes, this really has promise. We've seen multiple studies. We've seen controlled studies that to the extent that's possible, that's when I think we'll start talking about that a little bit more. 
couple of other issues that stuck out to me in my reading over the last day or so. One of the areas of concern is potential reinfection with this with this disease. Now, there's not a lot of diseases out there where you're going to be subject to reinfection very quickly. The, the estimates I've seen are anywhere from a year's worth of immunity after you've recovered up to lifelong immunity. We don't know because this is such a new virus uh, where it's going to fall in. There have been some reports about reinfection in Asia and Peter Kulchinski, a virologist, had a nice thread about this on Twitter. And he thinks that there are three possible explanations for this, uh, none of which would indicate that it's possible to get reinfected immediately. One thought for these patients having and by the way when we're talking about reinfection it's basically you had the virus you tested negative then you test positive again at a later point so one possible explanation here is that the patients have recovered from their COVID infection they're on their way to clearing the virus but there are still lingering bits and pieces the virus are on and so that's one way that you might have a negative test and then a positive test and that these tests uh, can be very sensitive at detecting the genetic material of the virus. It could even be a non-infectious byproduct of the immune system dealing with the virus, uh, even when you're no longer infectious. And you could also have that negative test be a false negative. Maybe the swab was mishandled. Maybe it didn't pick up enough material. So if you have another retest that turns up positive, maybe you're just still catching the original infection. It wasn't actually cleared. So uh, Peter makes the point, I, I agree with him, that we don't want to assume that these patients who are recovered actually were reinfected again, or that the low levels of viral material that were detected, not necessarily a viable virus, but this is viral material, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily infectious to others if they are testing positive after testing negative. And Peter notes that yes, immunity can fade, but the virus is not mutating the part that the immune system recognizes, the so-called spike protein, and that immunity can fade after a year, but that this would have to be a unique virus indeed for immunity to fade so quickly. Another thing I want to talk about is the idea of seasonality of the virus. This is something that has been seized upon by many. There almost seems to be a cottage industry at this point of people who are looking for reasons why this is all overblown and we shouldn't be that worried about it. And, and one of those that I've often seen is the seasonality. And certainly there are other coronaviruses that are seasonal, but there doesn't appear to be a lot of evidence as of now based on the distribution of the virus to indicate that there is a substantial seasonal component. That may emerge at some point. I wouldn't rule that out. But I think if you're holding on to that as a reason why, hey, we're going too far here, this isn't that bad, I, I don't think that's necessarily the way to go. And one of the papers to look at this, this is a bit ago, last week I think that this came out, a paper from Kasim Bukhari and Yusuf Jamil at MIT, which was shared by Nicholas Christakis. This paper concluded that current data, although limited, suggests that it is extremely unlikely that the spread of COVID-19 would slow down in the USA or Europe due to environmental factors because a large number of cases have already been reported in the range of absolute humidity and temperature experienced by these regions for most part of the year. And they went on to conclude, our results in no way suggest that COVID-19 would not spread in warm, humid regions and effective public health interventions should be implemented 
implemented across the world to slow down the transmission of COVID-19. Now to say extremely unlikely, Nate Silver thought that was maybe a little bit too far to go. Christakis felt that way as well. I'm not sure what extremely unlikely means. Is that 1% probability or something like that? It, It seems like simply the fact that other coronaviruses are seasonal would confer a higher probability than that. But I think the overall point here is a good one in that you don't want to be making policy decisions on the assumption that this is going to subside in a seasonal manner. Another piece that I thought was very informative that caught my eye is a piece from Dylan Scott at Vox discussing the risk by age. This is something that some of those initial reports, but then I discussed the viral marketing a much scarier usage of it than the normal way that term is used. But a big part of why perhaps people didn't take this as seriously was the idea that your risk is limited to older people. And so Scott's piece tried to go through and really quantify based on the available studies what the risk is among certain age groups. Now, there's a a couple of reasons to before we get into this. One reason to think that maybe this is undercounting is they have a number of statistics about people in the ICU. And when you're looking at Stuff that's pretty recent, unfortunately, you have to conclude that a number of those people in the ICU are there because they're in very serious condition. And so the death numbers here may be undercounted because some of those people who are in the ICU that they're talking about here are going to end up passing away. And another thing that really isn't necessarily considered, I think we're going to start seeing more charts like this. Thomas Pueo shared one from a town in Italy, just comparing the number of deaths in the community, not necessarily coronavirus related to this time last year. And the spike was far beyond, at least in the data that he shared preliminary, this would be something to keep an eye on, far beyond what would be shown just from the number of recorded coronavirus deaths. Some of that could be people dying from coronavirus and it's not logged. Some of it could be the healthcare system is overwhelmed, something that that we have really been concerned about. And so other things that you might have been saved from, a, a heart attack, something like that, you don't have the ability to go to the ER for a heart attack, just as you don't necessarily for coronavirus if your healthcare system is overwhelmed. So the overall death rate in the communities is something that I think we're going to need to keep an eye on here. But back to Scott's piece, one reason to think that these numbers make it seem a little bit worse i I just said some why they may under be undercounting is that various reports have indicated that about 10 to 50 percent of cases are asymptomatic so some cases are just not showing up here in scott's data so let's start with people 10 and under we actually saw in illinois the first infant who died and there's indications that may have been due to coronavirus that they're going to try to determine that but that's the first report we've seen of coronavirus being a factor in an infant dying and the conclusion is that infants are more vulnerable than toddlers and elementary school kids but overall only a small number of children under 10 years old are requiring hospitalization And as of March 21st, we've now seen one in Illinois, but nobody in the 10 and under age group had died. But for children less than one year old, they encompass about 30% of the severe cases and more than half of the critical cases. So it seems the biggest risk is to children less than one year old. So there's a very low risk overall, but 
A study published March 16th in the journal Pediatrics did show that younger children face a higher likelihood of more dangerous outcomes. For the 10 through 19 cohort, teenagers essentially, out of 221 cases in Spain in this cohort, 15 have been hospitalized. So that again is a much lower hospitalization rate than the 20% or so that it seems to be in the general population. And none have ended up in intensive care. Only one of those 221 cases has died. Italy and South Korea, no fatalities in the 10 through 19 group. And China, only 0.2% of those cases died. And as of last week in the US, no ICU admittances or deaths among people in this age group. And only a small percentage, 1.6% of those have been hospitalized. So 10 through 19, not a ton of risk so far, obviously, other than the risk of acquiring this and transmitting it. In the 20 through 29 age group, 14% hospitalization rate, but 0.6% intensive care rate and 0.3% fatality rate. And in the U.S., the CDC, their cohort is 20 to 44, but among that group, 14% hospitalized, 2% in the ACU, only 0.1% fatality rate. So still relatively low. They're obviously we're getting into the next cohort with that as well. Now in the 30 to 49 range, and it's important to remember too, when we're talking about these percentages of hospitalization, percentage in the ICU, and then the death rate, number one, as I said, some of the people who are currently in the ICU, in the hospital, may still end up dying. This isn't necessarily that all of these people who are hospitalized and in the ICU have now been released and recovered. That's not the case here. So I I would imagine that these death rates are going to go up because obviously you get hospitalized and you go to the ICU uh, before uh, you're going to die. So 30 to 49 age range, 20% hospitalization, 5% ICU, 0.5% death rate. In Spain, again, you have that 20% hospitalization rate, only a 1.1% ICU rate, 0.2% fatality rate, Italy, China, South Korea have all been in that same fatality rate or fatality range as well. The CDC, again, they've got a little bit of different numbers, but 50 up to age 54, 45 to 54, 21.2% hospitalized, 5.4% in the ICU, 0.5% death rate. Again, I I have reason to think that death rate is going to end up being lower. So it seems like from this data, Scott's piece uh, concluded that your odds of hospitalization, intensive care, and death, it really seems to increase from your early 40s to your late 40s both with the CDC data and data from Spain. The rate of hospitalization in Spain jumped from 70% from ages 30 to 39 to 23% from for ages 40 to 49. The 50 to 69 range, 36% hospitalization rate in Spain, 3.7% in the ICU. Interesting that it would be lower than in some of the earlier age ranges. Perhaps that's because if you have to be hospitalized at those younger age ranges, you may have some kind of an underlying condition that makes it more likely that you would have to go to the ICU. That's just a hypothesis that I have. In the U.S., again, a little bit different in numbers. People 55 to 64, 20% hospitalized, 4.7% ICU. 65 to 74 in the U.S., 29% hospitalization, ICU 8%, nearly a 3% death rate. And then for 70 plus, we know it gets really bad at that point. Over half of people in Spain hospitalized, about 3,400 out of 6,200 cases. 
and 11.4% fatality rate. Italy, China, and South Korea have had fatality rates from 6.2% up to 20.2% for people 70 plus. And the U.S. numbers from ages 75 to 84, 4% fatality rate, 10.4% fatality rate for those 85 and older. And again, my worry is that that fatality rate is going to end up being low because a lot of these patients that are in the ICU and in the hospital right now may end up perishing. Another interesting piece of info that I got uh, from the This Week in Virology podcast, although they're now doing it daily, they interviewed a physician in Washington, Daniel Griffin, and he noted a couple of things that I thought were newsworthy. One is the idea that with the cases that he's seen, it takes about seven days from the first onset of symptoms to presenting in the hospital. So you do the math on that, we've seen an average onset of symptoms five to seven days after infection. Then you add another seven days to that from your first onset of symptoms. And so you're seeing really then it's about two weeks after infection that people are presenting at the hospital. And I think part of this, uh, the reason why hospitalization data, which is why I thought uh, Dylan Scott's piece was noteworthy, part of the reason why that's so useful is to really get an idea of our health system and whether it's going to get overwhelmed or not. And so most of the data on hospitalizations that are happening now, these are people who are infected on average probably around two weeks ago. And another chilling stat that Dr. Griffin relayed was that 50% of the people who are put on ventilators who get to the point where it's that bad, 50% of those people are dying. And what that tells you is we're probably looking at a doubling of the death rate if we don't have ventilators at a minimum. And it's also chilling because if you get to that point where it's that bad, they only have a 50% chance of saving your life, it it seems like. And so I've seen a few other estimates that that are even higher than 50% in terms of your potential rate of dying once you're put on a ventilator. So that's scary in the sense that what seems like the best therapies that we have right now are not that effective. Give you a little bit of good news here though. United Health and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation collaborated on research with University of Washington and Quest Diagnostics, a lab testing company that you're probably all familiar with. And they found that tests using self-administered swabs accurately detected COVID-19 in more than 90% of positive patients and that that rate is consistent with the clinician-administered tests, according to United Health Group's news release on the study. It was conducted on nearly 500 patients in their network of clinics in Seattle. And we may need a little more evidence on this, but if indeed it's possible for, A, you don't have to get all the way into the back of the throat up someone's nose to test them, it makes it easier to test It makes it easier to do it properly. And a Minneapolis Star Tribune article discussing this said that healthcare professionals who are doing these tests have to use a lot of protective gear. Because if you think about it, you really have to get a new set every time you're going to test somebody because a lot of these tests are going to be negative. If you just tested someone positive, you can't risk that spreading to the next person that you're testing. And so they estimated that each test can use up According to Dr. Deneen Voita, who is the United Health Chief Medical Officer, he said that frontline workers are going through protective equipment two and a half per patient. And if this new method works just as well, I mean, number one, if you can just do it at home, that would be fantastic. And there are some other testing kits that are potentially coming online that use different methods other than the swab. But to not really have to go in through the nose 
and get like four inches back in your nasal cavity, I think everyone would agree that that's uh, better if in fact it, it works. Also, a $1 billion deal between the U.S. government and Johnson & Johnson was announced today. They are going to expand their production loads to potentially make a vaccine. Now, we don't know what vaccine that is yet. We don't know which vaccines actually work. It's also unclear whether this productive capability will be able to shift to whatever vaccine actually does work. It sounds like Johnson & Johnson is making a bet on a couple of potential vaccines that they believe have promised right now. I have to learn more about that deal, but it looks like uh, I like the fact that we're planning ahead to at least have this capacity to really ramp up production once uh, a vaccine is found, if indeed one is found. Other news around the United States, we mentioned at the outset of yesterday's program that President Trump extended the, we'll call it physical distancing, taking a page from Gavin Newsom in California, it really should be physical distancing more than social distancing because we should be trying to keep in touch with people in our lives. I think that's obviously very important for us when we're stuck at home. But three quarters of the U.S. population now under stay-at-home orders and Trump extended to April 30th the physical distancing guidelines in the U.S. The only states that don't have any orders at all as of Monday, Nevada, Arizona, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Arkansas. I still am concerned that to the extent we don't have these orders, people are waiting for cases to present. But as noted, the incubation period for this virus is so long. Once you have cases, it's already really in a community transmission mode. And so my concern is that there's going to be a delay in being able to open things back up because jurisdictions that don't have stay-at-home orders yet are just like, ah, we don't have any cases yet. We don't have to do that. Well, okay, maybe you're three weeks behind everyone else, but everything is indicated it's going to happen for you. And number one, it might be nice to save lives. And number two, if the rest of the nation has to wait for you because you started four weeks late, you could just do a stay-at-home order now, prevent a massive amount of spread, and then when everyone else is ready to open up, you will be too, as opposed to, no, we got transmission in our community four weeks later than everyone else, and then we waited to shut down until then, and now we can't reopen until four weeks after everyone else. Another story that is starting to get some coverage here and is a major concern is what's going on in our jails and prisons. Social distancing, physical distancing, not exactly possible there. Some jurisdictions are trying to release as many prisoners as they can, nonviolent offenders and the like. But it is definitely in the prison system, the Rikers Island Jail Complex in New York, 139 confirmed cases of the virus. A week ago, Cook County Jail in Chicago had two diagnoses. Now they're up to 101. A dozen shifts deputies also tested positive there. And in the federal prison system, 38 inmates and employees have the virus and one prisoner has died in Louisiana. I don't know what they're going to do about this. How are they going to prevent the coronavirus from just spreading throughout the entire prison population? I really have no idea. My only thought would be that you would just have to come up with additional security and set up essentially temporary prisons to where you can social distance more. But that has a number of logistical hurdles as well. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of a movement to do that. I can't think of any other potential solutions besides that. So this could be a massive problem. Little bit better news out of New York. Credit to Farzad Mostashari, the former National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, 
also used to work in the New York City Health Department. He's been noting over the last couple of days some suggestive evidence that the New York outbreak may be abating after the stay-home order. And he notes that there are flaws in these data, such as just quote-unquote cases when you're not testing that much. Percent test positivity, again, you don't know what types of populations are being tested. But the big thing that he noted is a drop in the number of hospital visits in the last few days for influenza-like symptoms and respiratory symptoms. And as of March 30th, those have been on a downward trend for a couple of days. He noted that Saturday, March 28th actually had a lower volume than Saturday, March 21st for influenza-like symptoms. So hopefully that is an indication that things are starting to flatten in New York. We'll have to watch the data more closely there. And I mean, Lord knows they need it. They're really struggling. We'll finish up here talking about what's going on around the world. Chilling statistic from Spain. This was shared by Lori Garrett on Twitter. Almost 13,000 health workers have tested positive for coronavirus in Spain. And that is 14% of the country's just over 85,000 cases as of Monday. And that has massive implications, not only for those workers and their families, obviously, but also for the ability to provide care. Your capacity, the healthcare system is going to go down quite a bit if you have this number of health workers testing positive. We haven't talked that much about Africa. We mentioned that there's a stay-at-home order now in South Africa in the last episode. The United Nations reporting that nearly half of all jobs in Africa could be lost because of the coronavirus. And their report, which was released on Monday, warned that the coronavirus crisis is going to disproportionately affect developing countries in Africa and elsewhere. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because if you have a stay-at-home order, developing nations don't have the ability to work from home the way so many people are lucky enough to in other countries. Zimbabwe, neighbor to South Africa, they implemented a 21-day nationwide lockdown. And Nigeria offered the cessation of movement in Lagos and their capital Abuya for, I hope I pronounced that correctly, for 14 days. But the the situation in populous developing countries is going to be something that we're going to be monitoring very closely as we go on because there's much greater difficulty to physically distance in more crowded countries. Russia has only reported 495 cases of coronavirus and one death, which is a lot fewer than in Western Europe. Vladimir Putin has previously said the situation is under control there, but a major Putin ally, Sergei Sobyanin, the mayor of Moscow, has noted that the real number of cases cases is unclear and We mentioned some of the measures they had taken yesterday. They are now closing nightclubs, cinemas, and children entertainment centers to slow the spread of the virus. And this is just another example where I don't think there's anything special about any of these countries. If you don't have any cases, unless you've gone the route of South Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan of really aggressively testing, which there's no indication that Russia has done that, there's no reason to think that this isn't coming for you. In France, they are getting to the point where they're overwhelmed enough that they actually used army helicopters to transport patients from eastern France, which has been one of the hardest hit regions, to hospitals in Germany and Switzerland. They are trying to free up more space 
in ICUs. I'm encouraged by some of the reports coming out of Germany. First of all, they're hoping to have essentially a coronavirus app, which I haven't heard anything about us doing yet, but it seems like there's no reason not to have that that will help with tracking and reporting. And there's also a German plan to test hundreds of thousands of people for the presence of antibodies and issue immunity certificates to those who test positive for antibodies and then allow those people to go back to work. I think that it's a great plan that other countries should be trying to implement as well. Sweden is the only country in Europe right now without some type of lockdown. And there have been a few precautions, some of the piecemeal stuff that we're familiar with here from a couple of weeks ago. No gatherings of more than 50 people. They revised that down from 500 last Friday. People over 70 or who are ill should avoid social contact. The Prime Minister, Stefan Lofven, I think is how it's pronounced, he's urged Swedes to behave as adults and to not spread panic or rumors. But once more, with Swedish cases growing, I think there's not much reason to believe that there's only a matter of time and there's very little evidence so far that these type of piecemeal measures are, are actually going to work. And we've seen country after country now, Britain, us, Russia, Maybe you can throw Turkey in that category. They didn't have cases for a while. They were kind of keeping things open. It's just incredible how we haven't done a good enough job of learning from other countries' experiences. We have these examples right in front of us, and yet countries have insisted on retarding these measures. And, I mean, I hope that it works out for Sweden. I really do. But that is just flies in the face of all of the evidence that we've seen so far worldwide. I'm generally eschewed political news here, but in Hungary, I thought it was worth noting the Hungarian parliament passed a bill giving their prime minister, Viktor Orban, essentially, it seems like, unlimited power. They've declared a state of emergency, no time limit. Parliament has been suspended. There aren't any elections planned, and there are prison terms for spreading fake news and rumors up to five years in prison and leaving quarantine up to eight years in prison. And right now, uh, Orban's Nationalist Party has a two-thirds majority. The opposition who voted against this at least were pushing for a sunset clause where, at a minimum, Parliament should vote to have to reinstitute these measures but that and why you would suspend parliament that is crazy to me and hopefully this isn't a, a trend that spreads elsewhere i'm not sure what the emergency is that would require the suspension of a legislative body for any kind of legitimate reason in china many have perhaps appropriately viewed the data out of there with skepticism we noted a couple of days ago that south china morning post report obtaining the classified Chinese documents that indicated that positive tests for asymptomatic people weren't being counted in their official cases and that there were about 40,000 of those compared to the 90,000 officially acknowledged positive tests. And I think the position on that is just to continue to have healthy skepticism, but there's not quite enough out of there yet for me to say, no, we just have to completely throw out all data that we're getting from China. One of the things that's been noted was a report from Radio Free Asia that many more bodies have been cremated in Wuhan than were consistent with the number of deaths reported from coronavirus. And that is troubling, but it's also not dispositive of the issue that there were more coronavirus deaths. Because they were under a quarantine, there weren't funerals, people weren't able to go get their loved ones remains, so it could be 
deaths from non-coronavirus sources that would have happened anyway, at least based on the report that I read. There wasn't really, they didn't give you any more data other than the overall number or, or the overall cremation capacity in Wuhan. So we'll continue to keep our eye on a lot of these Chinese numbers. Certainly there's a report in the Daily Mail out of Britain today that Boris Johnson's scientific advisors warned him that statistics from China could be downplayed by 15 to 40 times, but no evidence for that was cited. And it's also worth noting that we have few reports out of Yin Yang, which I probably butchered again. I'm not very good at Chinese pronunciation. I apologize for that. Uh, but that is where uh, the Uyghurs are essentially in concentration camps right now and one would have to imagine that if the virus reached there that like in our prison system it would be very difficult to stop the spread of it so we'll keep our eye on that i, I totally understand people who don't trust the chinese government and their statistics but i'm not ready to say that no there were 15 times more deaths than the official numbers yet finally in italy the number of newly reported cases seems to be dropping. It's trended relatively downward from 6,100 on Thursday down to 4,000 reported today. That is with a reduction in tests from 36,000 to 23,000. The hope would be that just fewer tests were warranted due to symptoms, not because of a shortage of testing. We, we don't know that yet, but it does seem like the curve has at least flattened in Italy. They had a maximum of 6,600 or so reported cases last Saturday, March 21st, and that's now down to 4,000 so thanks for bearing with me. I, I missed Ben too. This is a struggle doing this by myself, but he will be back tomorrow. And thanks again for supporting this endeavor of ours. Stay safe out there and we'll talk to you next time.